You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Good afternoon, and welcome to the International Spy Museum. My name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian at the Spy Museum, and it's my great pleasure to bring to you today uh, a prolific author, uh, a biographer, Kai Bird, uh, who I have been following on a personal note for the, the length of my short academic career. Uh, it seemed to have gone parallel in many respects. We didn't plan this, of course. Uh, I started studying uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, and so Kai's earliest two books on the Bundy brothers and on John McCloy were required reading for me as I went through grad school. Uh, as I narrowed my focus, I started studying nuclear intelligence and nuclear history. And conveniently, uh, in the mid-2000s, this book was published, uh, American Prometheus, co-authored with Martin Sherwin, Pulitzer Prize winning. Uh, once you're done with The Good Spy, I highly recommend uh, you take a look at American Prometheus. And then now, of course, I work at the Spy Museum, and you write a book about spies. So that's nice and convenient. Thank you. Uh, if down the road a bit, if, you have, if you're struggling to come up with a new topic, I'll let you know where my career has taken me, and you can write something uh, that works out well for me also. Uh, but we are here to talk about The Good Spy. Uh, the new book came out just last week uh, about the life and death of Robert Ames. Uh, this book has gotten fantastic pub. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, many magazines and journals around the country have written uh, raving reviews about this. It's even ended up in this week's Entertainment Weekly uh, with a uh, barely clad Jessica Alba on the cover, but their, their must list has this book as number three uh, behind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Mariah Carey's new album. So. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that means you've made it in the world or not, or, uh, but uh, I expect that this book's going to do very well, and it should. Uh, this is a fascinating study of a man that uh, very few people know about. Uh, the name Ames certainly is known in intelligence circles, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, the infamous Aldrich Ames is the only time people really know that name. Uh, and I think if it wasn't for this book, uh, the, the man Robert Ames would have been long forgotten maybe not by many of you here who possibly knew Ames, but for most of the public, it's just not someone that is on the tip of everyone's tongue, and mainly because he didn't get the chance himself to write his memoir down the line, as so many have done uh, in the past. 
Uh, I'm not going to steal a lot of your thunder, uh, but I think this book uh, is a must read uh, for intelligence aficionados like myself, but also for the general public. To understand a time when the CIA and the intelligence community was doing uh, pretty amazing things around the world, uh, and at a time when most public perception of the agency, uh, the American intelligence community has been negative. Uh, this is a chance to really look at uh, and understand that the men and women who are doing intelligence work around the world for the United States really have the best interests of America at heart. Uh, and so without further ado, Mr. Kybert. Thank you, Vince. Uh, that was a great introduction. I'm, I'm shocked that I'm in Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> uh, but not shocked that rock and roll takes precedence over uh, a spy history, a biography of a, quote, spy. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to begin back in September 1993, uh, when Frank Anderson, then the chief of the DO, Directorate of Operations for the Near East and South Asia, was driving to work here in Washington, and he was a little... Um, uneasy, although he should have been happy and knew that this should have been a good day for him because Frank had spent his whole career on the Middle East, as you know, a very war-torn, troubled neighborhood. And that day, uh, Yasser Arafat was scheduled to shake hands with Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin on the White House lawn. Peace had finally come to the troubled Middle East. But when Frank got into his uh, Langley office that morning, he convened his regular 9 o'clock Monday morning, uh, not Monday morning, uh, to, I think it was a Tuesday, uh, <clears throat> meeting, uh, staff meeting, and he turned to an aide and said, well, who's representing the agency down there on the White House lawn today? A phone call was made, and uh, the answer was apparently no one. And so Frank turned to his staff and he said, well, let's go visit our dead. And they rounded up two buses and found some young, newly minted intelligence officers from both the clandestine services and the Directorate of Intelligence. And uh, they went out to National, Arlington National Cemetery. And at the moment when the famous handshake happened, they were standing around the gravesite of Robert Ames. And Frank Anderson, explained that this fallen CIA officer had started it all. He had planted the seeds of the Oslo peace process way back in 1969 by creating a sort of back-channel, highly clandestine uh, relationship with uh, Yasser Arafat's chief bodyguard at the time and virtual intelligence chief, a young man named Ali Hassan Saleme. Um, and that relationship continued from 69 until 79, uh, and it was an extraordinary thing. Ames was uh, not your usual kind of stereotype of a, an intelligence officer. He wasn't blue blood, he didn't go to Yale, he wasn't a member of Skull and Bones. He was the son of a steel worker growing up in Philadelphia, and uh, he uh, joined the CIA, applied to the CIA after a stint in the Army, 
where the army had sent him to Cagnus Station, uh, listening post in, in the mountains of Ethiopia at the time, where he first heard Arabic spoken in the streets. And though he had grown up the son of a steel worker in Philadelphia, um, not a cosmopolitan background at all, uh, he, he fell in love with the language and started to teach himself. Arabic, and then when he applied to the CIA and went through the farm training in here in, in, down in Virginia, he applied to the Near East Division and said he wanted to work in the Middle East. And uh, I actually met him during his first assignment in Dahran, Saudi Arabia, in 1962, when I was, you know, all of 11 years old. <laughs> he was our next door neighbor, and uh, he was there for three, three, well, he was there for four years. Um, we were there, his neighbor, for three years. And I have vivid memories of this tall, handsome young man in his late 20s at the time, uh, six foot three, loved to play basketball, had blue eyes, blonde hair, very striking, ha strikingly handsome young man. And had a beautiful wife, who I remember in particular, who looked like Lee Ullman. Um, of course, I didn't know at the time that he was a spy, quote, but um, my father did. My father was a foreign service officer stationed in Dahran then. Um, so, <clears throat> but years later, I read about his tragic death in Beirut in 1983 in the first truck bomb attack on a U.S. embassy. And uh, I then realized who he was, and I'd always been curious about his career. Anyway, when I got into the book, um, I discovered that really the crucial the heart of his career was this relationship with Ali Hassan Salome. And it was an extraordinary relationship. It was that in 1969 was a, a moment when no U.S. official could have could be seen in public with a member of the PLO, which was branded as a terrorist organization. Um, you know, Henry Kissinger had made a promise to the Israelis that they would have no contacts. Uh, <clears throat> but Ames was brought together with Ali Hassan by a young Lebanese Shiite businessman named Mustafa Zain. And this too is part of the story that I tell in the book. Uh, Ames meets the young Mustafa who's uh, Become, virtually serves as his access agent, though Mustafa never took a dime, was never recruited, never signed a contract, um, and I w managed to sort of authenticate this with the agency. Uh, he was just a friend, but Mustafa was one of these characters who knew everyone in Beirut, uh, from kings and, and prime ministers to the belly dancers in the casinos. <laughs> And uh, he also was good friends with Ali Hassan. And Ames persuaded uh, Ali Hassan, uh, Mustafa, to introduce them. And it was a classic sort of meeting in a cafe, the Strand Cafe in West Beirut. Uh, th they set up a, a, an appointment hour. Mustafa was supposed to sit down at a cafe, the cafe table with Ali Hassan. Uh, Ali Hassan brought his bodyguards from Force 17, of which he was the chief, uh, armed bodyguards, and Ames brought his own contingent of, of bodyguards. 
and the scenario they had worked out was that Ames was supposed to walk by casually on the sidewalk, and as he walked by their table, Mustafa would reach out his hand to and put his hand on the shoulder of, of uh, Ali Hassan to signify that this is the man we're going to meet later. Um, well, <clears throat> apparently uh, Ali Hassan, uh, who was an exuberant, uh, charismatic young man, uh, went off script, jumped up, uh, stuck out his hand and, and shook hands with Ames and pointed to Mustafa and said, this is my man. Uh, this is the beginning of their relationship. They shortly after met in a CIA safe house. And uh, as I said, it was an extraordinary relationship. Ames was a very much an all-American basketball player. He loved, his favorite drink was root beer. He loved listening to the Beach Boys. <laughs> he, he didn't drink very much at all. One of his rivals inside the agency complained that he, you know, he, if you can't drink, if you don't drink, how can you recruit agents? <laughs> but Ames is not that kind of a, a guy. He was devoted to his wife and eventually his six children. Um, Ali Hassan was just the opposite. He loved to dress all in black with a gold chain and his shirt unbuttoned to show a lot of, uh, a lot of hair on his chest. Uh, he, was a, he was a handsome, charismatic young man who loved good red wine and beautiful women and fast cars. And uh, he thought of himself as a professional revolutionary. He packed a pistol in his waistband. Uh, and <clears throat> he was trying to persuade Ames to create, to recognize the PLO, to have a dialogue with the PLO. And of course, Ames was initially targeting him perhaps for recruitment, but he quickly, Ames decided that this was not a recruitable source. He, was, he could become a source, and he turned it into a friendship. Frank Anderson later said, professionally speaking, he told me, professionally speaking, they were each the most significant person in each other's lives. Uh, And it was a relationship, but it was a rocky relationship. After all, Ali Hassan not only packed a gun, but he was a revolutionary, which meant that he had indeed been involved in, in bloody events. He had killed people. He was directing in the early 70s the war, the, the war of the spooks, as they called it where Israeli Mossad officers were attempting to target Palestinians, and the Palestinians, in part led by Ali Hassan, were retaliating. Uh, it was a rocky relationship, and it was, you know, a relationship with, quote, a terrorist, a freedom fighter, a professional re revolutionary. Um, but I argue in the book that this was exactly what a CIA officer should be doing, trying to um, get close to and cultivate and get information from, quote, a bad guy. Um, Ames was, he broke all the rules in a certain way, but in, a, in an imaginative and commonsensical fashion. He was just very good at um, cultivating friends. He was not a James Bond. You know, he did, in fact, have to carry a, a pistol occasionally in Aden 
or in, in the streets of Beirut as it turned into a civil war in the mid-70s, but he hated guns. Um, he made no enemies, really, except from, for some of his rivals inside the agency, I think, in a bureaucratic politics, office politics, but uh, he, he, he was the kind of guy who just uh, elicited friendship. He stuck, stuck, He stood out as an American. He was, you know, so tall. He and he accentuated his his uh, Americanness by wearing cowboy boots and uh, aviator tinted glasses. And you know, he'd walk down the streets of Beirut, and he was obviously an American. But he also, by this time, he had fluent Arabic. He could joke in Arabic. He could pun in Arabic. He could read the newspaper, and he could carry on a conversation with a native speaker about politics. And so this elicited, you know, deep respect from anyone who met him in the, in the Arab world. I want to, at one point in the, in the book, I, I quote from some of the letters that Ames wrote to his wife. And the letters are extraordinary. They're very personal. They're handwritten letters that I found in the proverbial suitcase in the attic at one point in my research. And uh, I also found Mustafa Zain, the, his, his sort of access, virtual access agent, a man who, who introduced him to everyone around Beirut. Uh, I found Mustafa Zain, and Mustafa is a great storyteller, but he also, fortunately for this biographer, he saved his letters. He saved photographs, uh, and he also had an unwritten, uh, unpublished uh, uh, memoir that he'd been working on for years. And when I found him, he said he'd been looking for someone like me to tell his story and Bob Ames's story for decades. Uh, anyway, at one point, he, Bob Ames writes to Mustafa, and this is around the time of the terrible Munich uh, tragedy where 11... Uh, Israeli athletes are tragically killed um, at the Munich Olympics in September 1972. And at that point, their relationship, Ames's relationship with, with Ali Hassan, had broken down. Um, and Ames was very much disturbed by what had happened in Munich. So he writes to, to Mustafa Zain, what hurt deepest were the comments of Ali. I thought we understood each other. We are both professionals in our trade. But I have a personal loyalty to friends that transcends business. I have written much about Ali, as I'm sure he has done about me for his organization. What I wrote was intimate and detailed because I wanted our people to understand him his motives, and his organization. What was written was written at the time we all had great hopes. Unfortunately, we never saw those hopes come into fruition, and in frustration, we went our separate ways. However, I never gave up my hopes and still have them today. Um, you know, what Ames is referring to here is his hopes that he can sort of talk the PLO down to looking at achieving their national aspirations without the gun, to think about a political solution, a compromise, a two-state solution, 
you know, just as Ali Hassan was trying to persuade him through, uh, persuade Washington through Ames to start dealing with the PLO, Ames is trying to guide the PLO towards a political solution. But then Bob acknowledged that Munich had happened, and that changed everything. Quote, I came back here to Washington ready to do things, and I actually was making some headway. Then came September, the Munich operation. Leave aside the motives for this act and my own feelings. The fact of the matter is, this act so alienated all the people here that the damage is irreparable. It was the timing and place, not the act in and of itself that did the damage. After that act, no one would listen anymore. All sympathy was gone. The only thought was that this should never happen again. Munich had led to an upheaval in Langley. The game had changed, the horrendous casualties, the innocent Israeli athletes killed on global live television compelled everyone to rethink the relationship with Ali Hassan. Ames had been shocked by what he saw, and he, he wrote to Mustafa Zain, I happened to see many files on Ali in, in Langley, in the CIA files, I, particularly from the Southern Company, meaning Mossad. And believe me, the details were amazing, particularly since they included much on me, which could only have come from his organization. In other words, there had been leaks, of course. I'm sure that much of our files were passed to other companies, although I cannot be sure of that. Ali is not exactly unknown. Uh, <clears throat> shortly after this, this correspondence, this is in December of 72, Ames persuades Mustafa to set up another meeting, and Ames begins to meet with Ali Hassan regularly in the spring of 73. And this becomes very critical to the story because uh, as the Lebanese Civil War begins in 75, 76, uh, Ames persuades Ali Hassan to, to have Fatah uh, provide security to the embassy in the midst of the Civil War. The embassy happens to be located in Fatah territory in West Beirut. Um, and they continue their relationship. They, you know, they go out, they have dinner every other night when Ames is in Beirut. Uh, Ames got to know Ali Hassan's wife and children. And throughout this time, uh, ironically enough, Mossad is trying to kill Ali Hassan. Uh, the first attempt is back in 1970 with a, uh, a letter bomb, which Ames had warned this PLO uh, uh, operative about. He warned him, you know, don't open any of your mail in your apartment building. Uh, make sure that it, anything that you do open is done at your office with an x-ray machine uh, scanning it first. Um, and then in 1973, Mossad attempt, thought they had gotten Ali Hassan, found him in a village in Norway, in Lillehammer, Norway, and instead they killed by uh, act of mistaken identity, a Moroccan waiter. Um, for a time, that shut down their attempts to, it was an enormous embarrassment fiasco, and five Mossad officers were imprisoned for several years in Norway. Anyway, that brought shut down the assassination attempts for a few years. Uh, but then they resumed again in the summer of 78, 
and I recount in the book how a Mossad officer in London approaches Ames's boss, Alan Wolf, and asks him directly, point blank, is Ali Hassan your man? And Wolf turns around in a huff and walks away without answering, but he reports this encounter back in Langley, and this precipitates a debate. Um, what do they do? What do they tell the Israelis? The Israelis actually reach out again. David Kimchi, the sort of Israeli Mossad officer who's the liaison officer for foreign intelligence for the Israelis, comes to Washington to see Ames and he asks the, the same question. This precipitates a difficult debate inside Langley. What do we do? What do we tell the Israelis? And again, it's sort of a classic intelligence dilemma. Um, Ali Hassan is not an agent. Um, so they can't say that. If they did, the Israelis might leak this information back in Beirut, making Ali Hassan a target fr from uh, his own people. Um, Ames tries to persuade, nevertheless, Ali Hassan to uh, let the agency tell the Israelis, you know, point blank, you can't touch him, he's our guy. And, um, but Ali Hassan is very fatalistic about this and uh, refuses to be identified in any way as an, an agency source. Uh, so in, in the end, apparently, uh, according to my sources, uh, Claire George and the agency who um, participated in, in this debate, the, the agency decided that the best answer was no answer. Um, Ames is quite upset about this and, and he uh, warns Ali Hassan to beef up his security. He sends him uh, encrypted communications equipment to try to do this. Um, but in the fall of 78, uh, Mossad sends, infiltrates a team of, of Mossad operatives into Beirut, and on January 22nd, they succeed in killing him with a car bomb. Uh, <clears throat> Anyway, it's, it's, uh, I, I want to leave, I'm going to end very shortly now, but um, I want to leave lots of time for questions. Uh, Ali Hassan is killed in January of 79, and then four years later, Ames himself is on a visit by coincidence back to Beirut. He hadn't been back in four years, and he walks into the embassy on Monday morning, April 18th, and about 1 p.m., a truck bomb rolls in and destroys the building. And eight CIA officers are killed, and uh, a total of 17 Americans die also that day, and 46 Lebanese. And as I said, it's the first truck bomb attack on a U.S. embassy. And it remains a mystery for many years who did it, but in 2003, a uh, a federal district court in, here in Washington, um, a judge after a trial uh, in which a civil suit had been filed by Ames's widow and other survivors and relatives of the victims of the bombing, um, they filed a suit against the Islamic Republic of Iran, and expert testimony in the course of that trial established uh, to the judge's satisfaction that Iran was indeed behind this attack and that it wasn't simply a lone suicide bomber, but it was a complicated operation. 
Um, so I believe the, the truck bomb attack was, in, in fact, carried out by the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards stationed in the Bekaa Valley in the summer of 82. Um, and it's a tragedy that we're still living with today. These suits were, were, the judgment came back in 2003. The Ames family actually was awarded a, a judgment of $38 million, but not a dime has been paid. And interestingly enough, we're involved this very week in negotiations, of course, with Iran. And I think we all hope that they succeed and that we avoid uh, further conflict there. But the civil suits and their the, the uh, awards that were awarded have become a sort of diplomatic stumbling block to these negotiations. They're part of, part of the diplomacy that's being negotiated as we speak. So finally, I'm going to end on just a, uh, on an anecdote that sort of gives you more of a sense of Bob Ames himself. He, he was, you know, a very intelligent, um, well-read, uh, Intellectual, he was sometimes criticized for being too intellectual in the DO and the clandestine services. Um, and indeed, he, he was a man who did switch, although he spent most of his career in the clandestine services. By 1978, he switched to become a national intelligence officer for the Near East and then became, rose to be head of the uh, uh, analytical division for the director of intelligence, sort of the boss of all the analysts. Um, looking at the Middle East. Um, the anecdote I want to tell, it takes place in about 1977, and he's in Beirut, and he, it's a dangerous period. It's, it's a m moment in the Civil War where uh, thousands of people are dying on both sides of the Green Line, as they called it, in, in no man's land that divides East and West Beirut. And Ames was there in Beirut on a temporary duty station for about three months. And he was one of only, apparently, two officers in the embassy who was allowed to leave the premises without a bodyguard. And of course, he couldn't do his work as a clandestine officer if he's going around in a convoy. So he rents a beat up old uh, Toyota car from, from a local rental agency. And uh, one day he has to travel to, the east, to East Beirut, which means he has to cross no man's land. And, and he's stopped, uh, not unsurprisingly, by uh, a contingent of Arab League, quote, peacekeepers at one of the more dangerous checkpoints. And uh, they order him out of his car and search the car and ask him to pop the trunk. These particular Arab League uh, soldiers came apparently from Yemen. They were uh, illiterate Yemeni tribesmen who had landed and you know, found themselves in Beirut. So they order him to pop the trunk and <coughs> they see in the trunk a cylinder metallic object that they assume is a bomb. They jump back and finger their machine guns, and Ames says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. He quickly tries to explain in Arabic to these illiterate Yemeni tribesmen that 
This is not a bomb, it's a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and of course, the, the Yemenis have never seen a vacuum cleaner. They don't know what a vacuum cleaner would do. <laughs> and, uh, but Ames's Arabic was good enough to get him past this moment of danger. And he wrote in a letter afterwards to Ivan, his wife, that throughout the incident, he was thinking of Graham Greene's novel, Our Man in Havana, <laughs> which is all about a vacuum cleaner who is mistaken for being a spy. Um, so I thought this, was, this is a classic story that shows just, A, how well-read Ames was, um, what a good sense of humor he was, and uh, what a courageous, uh, clandestine officer he was. So on that note, I'll, I'll, I want to end, and I hope you have lots of questions and we can continue this uh, as a conversation. Thank you very much. You probably want to, you can just stay. So in a lot of these circumstances, I'll take the right of first question, as, but kind of a prima nocte thing. But I think in this case, we're probably going to have a lot of questions from uh, people who are here. So I'm not going to get in their way. So all we want to ask you to do is raise your hand if you have a question, and then if you're called upon, wait for a microphone to show up, uh, because it's being taped in several different circumstances here. So uh, who has questions? Maybe I will ask the first question. Okay, here we go. Yeah, question came up here uh, often when uh, I worked for the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee as to how far uh, our uh, CIA offices ought to go in embedding themselves uh, with uh, some of their uh, sources and agents. And uh, given that Ali Hassan uh, had led and planned and, uh, and executed a number of the Israeli uh, athletes in Munich. Uh, that question came to the forefront often, I'm sure it did with you too. How, in your research, how much was that an issue within the uh, CIA? How far do we go uh, in getting ourselves in better with people whose uh, past has been uh, notorious? Uh, well, I think they go a long ways. <laughs> uh, you know, one of my sources told me, you know, cited this old quote, well, you know, sometimes you have to sup with the devil, but you mm. do so with a very long spoon. And uh, I think this happens all the time. And I, I think, you know, in, in an age where, at a moment when we're learning a lot about, uh, and we're being told that, uh, intercept intelligence is essential to our national security. I think reading The Good Spy will sort of give you pause um, and give you an appreciation at least for the value of human intelligence. Um, only human intelligence, only one-to-one -one contacts with these sources, these bad guys or bad guys on the periphery of other bad guys can really give you a sense of, of motivation and intentions and a relationship that leads to some ability to influence what happens. I mean, Ames always believed that his in, you know, intelligence gathering was, was not a abstract exercise. The whole purpose was to get good intelligence to policymakers who could then make better decisions that could influence events and change, uh, change policies if necessary. 
Um, on the issue of Ali Hassan in particular in Munich, there was in fact a vigorous debate. Some maintain to this day that the evidence that Ali Hassan was involved with Munich is, is compelling. Certainly the Israelis believe that. Um, but there is also evidence that uh, while Ali Hassan was certainly involved with Black September, this shadowy group that's uh, sort of came, emerged out of Fatah, uh, he, was, he had actually been put on leave by Arafat over an incident in, um, I believe it was in Germany, uh, Hamburg, where five Palestinians were sh shot and killed, um, I believe in, in early 72, and they were apparently informants. They were collaborators with the Israelis. And anyway, Ali Hassan was put on leave, a leave of absence, and at the time that Munich happened, he was traveling in Europe and had nothing to do with it. Um, some of my sources agree with that, and it's clear that Ames convinced himself, at least, that this was the case. Um, so it's a little, little murky. Uh, but I would say, I would argue even so, that um, after Munich, and certainly after the terrible Khartoum assassination of a U.S. ambassador, um, as a result of this back channel with Ali Hassan, Ames and the agency got a firm agreement and a promise from Fatah that they would no longer target diplomat, American diplomats or citizens. And indeed, they then began providing protection to the embassy, which became very critical, as I mentioned, to the, um, the embassy's uh, security during the Civil War. You say in the book that uh, you didn't have any cooperation from the CIA as an institution. Um, I think I've seen, uh, and I couldn't put, play, put my finger on it right now, uh, a, something from the CIA recently after your book was published denying some of the facts. Have you followed up on that, or what have they said exactly? Yes. Um, the book has only been out for a week, and last Tuesday evening I was on uh, CNN with Wolf Blitzer, um, and there was a, an interview with me and some other sources from the book, and uh, in the middle of the show, Blitzer announces, ah, the CIA has issued a further denial uh, of uh, the allegation that I had in the book about an, in, an Iranian intelligence officer. They claimed that they had not arranged his defection. They're referring to a man named Ali Hassan, uh, Ali Reza Asghari. And um, indeed, I say in the book that uh, Asghari, this Iranian intelligence officer who rose to become a general and deputy defense minister who defected in 2007, uh, arranged his own defection um, by getting himself to Syria and then bribing a border guard in Turkey. and. Um, the agency did not deny that Oscari had any involvement or complicity with the embassy bombing. And some of the evidence for that, it's a complicated story, but it's laid out in, at the end of the book. So the agency is, um, I think, having to protect its own sources and methods and 
I don't say where Oscari is today, but there is good evidence that when he defected, at some point he came to Washington and was debriefed by the intelligence community. So it's a mystery where he is now. So Bob Ames seems to be, if not the, certainly one of the CIA's experts on the Middle East. I mean, you, you know, if, you know, potentially even the most, uh, the go-to guy on the Middle East when it came to policy. Um, do you have any indication from your sources, from the research that you've done, uh, this is somewhat of a, a counterfactual, a historical question, but why not? Um, it seems the tragedy, other than the death itself, was the loss of institutional knowledge of the Middle East. Uh, how different may, you know, things have been if you had had him in the 80s and the early 90s to kind of pass along that information that he had learned over so much time and so much immersion in the Middle Eastern cultures? Yeah, no, I think his death was not only a tragedy, but, uh, you know, personally, but it was, uh, it came at a terrible moment for the Reagan administration. Um, at that point in 1983, Ames was the go-to guy for the president, for Reagan to be briefed on anything dealing with the Middle East. And Ames had become very influential uh, as head of the analytic DI, director of intelligence for the Middle East. So when, there, when something was happening, as a great deal was happening in 82 with the Israeli invasion of Lebanon and its aftermath and the Sabra and Shatila massacres, uh, when the president needed to be briefed about these things, Ames was brought into the Oval Office or to Camp David. And in the summer of 82, um, just as the Israelis were forcing the PLO out of Lebanon, uh, Ames became a critical um, author of Reagan's uh, September 1982 Reagan peace plan, which was a real step forward uh, the first time the Americans had offered their own vision for what a final peace settlement would look like. And uh, it was an extraordinary document. And I, I argue in the book, and I think I persuasively, that uh, without Ames, uh, Secretary of State George Shultz wouldn't have signed on to this. And without Shultz, Reagan wouldn't have signed on to it. But then Sabra and Shatila happened right after, just two weeks after the Reagan peace plan was unveiled, the Israelis went berserk um, about it. And, and uh, then Sabra and Shatila happened, and things just kept going downhill. And then, of course, Ames was killed in April of 83. And when that happened, Schultz was devastated. And uh, he thought he had lost his, his key man. So Reagan, in his own presidential diary, which has now been published, refers to Ames um, as the only man that he knew who had died that day, and referred to it as a devastating loss. And then six months later, the Marine Barracks incident happens. Uh, you know, another enormous security lapse in, in that this truck bomb came in April 18th that destroyed the embassy, and then six months later, yet another truck bomb um, just barrels through some barbed wire and, and past some unarmed guards at the Marine Barracks in Beirut, right outside of the airport. 
and 241 U.S. servicemen are killed. After that, the Reagan administration just, they tucked their tails and they ran. They eventually withdrew the Marines. Uh, Reagan failed to pursue the peace plan that he had authored and, and unveiled on September 1st, 82. And it just, it all went downhill. It unraveled. The Israelis were not called to account to um, perform on the promises they'd made at Camp David under the Carter administration with regard to the settlements. The settlements began to accelerate. Uh, and we now are stuck in this terrible stalemate uh, with uh, a terrible dilemma. You mentioned the family's involvement with lawsuits, but have you been able to um, keep up with how they're faring in that emotional turmoil? Oh, it's, it's a very personal story. Um, yeah, the, the Ames family, extraordinary, this is not actually extraordinary, it's typical, but as a clandestine officer, Ames didn't tell his children who he was. They grew up thinking that he was a foreign service officer or worked for the State Department in some way. Um, his wife, Yvonne, knew that he was actually a CIA officer. Um, and when he died, only his eldest child, who was then 21, had been told by Bob. The rest of the children learned who their father really was on the day he died when a knock came at the door and two CIA officers came to tell them that their father had died that day. And they were devastated. The youngest was 12 years old. Um, I believe they're still sort of wrestling with this legacy. It was an enormous trauma. It was very hard for Yvonne to actually um, make the decision to testify in 2003. She's a very private person, but she thought it was time to do this um, to, for her children to help bring out the story and to achieve some kind of justice. Um, the lead plaintiff in the case, Anne Demerell, um, lives here in Adams Morgan. Uh, she was almost killed in the bombing. Bro she had 19 broken bones. She spent you know, a year in hospitals afterwards. Um, she later spent several years at Georgetown University here writing a master's thesis about um, the trauma of, you know, the post-traumatic stress that she went through and that other survivors of the bombing had gone through. Um, and it's also troubling to the survivors and the relatives of the embassy bombing that it's sort of regarded as the forgotten bombing. Everyone remembers the Marine barracks larger number of casualties and servicemen, but everyone's forgotten that um, eight CIA officers and a total of 17 Americans were killed in, in, on April 18th, 83. She's coming from behind you. Thank you. You mentioned that uh, Ames seemed to have authority or at least uh, some sway over uh, lots of areas in the Middle East. Did he have an opinion on whether the Shah should be admitted to the United States uh, for medical treatment? Uh, and how did that go? Well, I don't know that. Uh, he had been stationed in Tehran briefly when Richard Helms was fired as 
director of the CIA by Richard Nixon in 1973, probably because of Watergate or what Nixon feared Helms knew about Watergate. Uh, <coughs> Helms was sent as ambassador to Tehran and Helms had mentored the young Bob Ames. He really admired him and uh, insisted that if he was going to be taking this job as ambassador in Iran, he wanted to bring Ames with him. And so for, he ended up only spending about six months there and then was transferred to Kuwait where he became station chief. Um, he, he did not know Farsi. He was an Arabic language specialist. And he had, I think, uh, the usual prejudices of an Arabic speaker with regard to the, to the, the Persians um, and vice versa. And uh, he, in the book, I make clear that he sort of liked to make fun of the Shah. <laughs> he joked about him. Um, and I think he would have been, I don't know this, but after the revolution, um, I don't know what he thought of the Shah being given asylum. But after the revolution, uh, extraordinarily enough, Ames was sent back to Tehran on a highly secret mission in September of 79, so just six months after the revolution, to try to create a relationship with the moderates in the new revolutionary regime. He had meetings with Bazargan, the prime minister at the time, and the foreign minister Yazdi, Ibrahim Yazdi. And I, it's a highly ironic story that he, Ames was authorized to try to um, entice the new revolutionary regime into talking, having some kind, restore some kind of normal relations by offering them some intelligence about specifically the uh, intelligence that we were seeing on their borders with Iraq that Saddam Hussein was massing his troops and might indeed be intending an attack. Um, this information was passed by Ames and then later in a second mission by George Cave. Um, and the regime ignored it and Ibrahim Yazdi and Bazargan quick, soon thereafter lost their jobs. Khomeini fired them, and a more radical um, regime, regime came to power. But this, this intelligence, sort of clandestine bit of diplom diplomacy failed. But Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about solving the mystery of who seems to have been behind the bombings of um, both the U.S. Embassy and the Marine Barracks. Uh, <clears throat> that's a complicated story, and uh, as I explained, there was this trial that came with a judgment that Iranian Revolutionary Guard officers were involved, and I name a number of them in the book, uh, in addition to which the, I also named the uh, Iranian ambassador to Damascus and recount that there's evidence that there was a meeting in Damascus in the ambassador's office attended by a number of re Revolutionary Guards, 
and uh, recount how after the Israeli invasion, a contingent of 1,500 uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards were sent to Lebanon um, into the Beka Valley in support of Lebanon vis-a-vis -vis the Israelis, ostensibly. Um, and they took over the, what's known as the Sheikh Abdullah barracks. Uh, and by my account, it's, that's where the truck bomb was assembled were initially assembled, um, and it, it was a complicated operation. It was uh, uh, 2,000 pounds of military-grade plastic, plastic explosives, and uh, this, according to the trial in 2003, the expert w witnesses testified that this military-grade explosives was not available in Lebanon, but they traced it to a military factory in Iran. Um, and then I name uh, a number of the Iranian officers who were stationed in the Sheikh Abdullah barracks in 82-83. Part of this contingent of 1,500 were, uh, Revolutionary Guards were sent back to Iran, but uh, about five to 700 remained. and. Uh, one of them is this man, uh, I believe, whose name is Ali Reza Asghari. And the surprising thing is that he was, he rose later on. He spent uh, his, uh, much of the 80s in Lebanon, I believe, and then uh, went back to Iran and became a deputy defense minister, and then had a falling out with the regime, spent a time in jail, and then in 2007 defected. And for a time at least he was here. We're not sure where he is now, but this is another sort of irony of the story that a man so um, complicit in both the embassy bombing and we believe the Marine barracks uh, may now be here. Oh my God, I didn't turn off my phone. <laughs> uh, <coughs> I have one last question, and then we, we, can, uh, we can wrap up. Uh, as a historian, I'm fascinated by sources and methods, for using an intelligence term. Um, and as a biographer, you seem to have worked your way into the, the mother load for this book. You had family giving you documents no one ever seen. You talked to people from our side, the CIA, but also from people inside the Middle East. How were you able to kind of pull all that together and, and and, and is that sometimes too much information is what you run into? I mean, how, uh, how are you able to make that not a 900 page book because you had so many wonderful sources? Uh, well, everyone has a different strategy for writing. Um, 30 years ago when I wrote my first book, I used to, a biography that uh, was of John J. McCloy, a powerful Wall Street lawyer, I would spend months writing meticulous outlines, chapter by chapter. Um, <clears throat> I quickly realized that that was very time consuming and a waste. <laughs> and uh, these days I, I get up every morning and I try to write every day, but I write whatever moves me, whatever I think would be fun to write about. And there are lots of, you know, as you say, I had lots of sources 
and the sources had great stories to tell. So before I went to sleep every night, I would tell myself, well, what would I like to write about tomorrow morning? And, uh, oh, that story from that letter that Ames wrote to Mustafa Zain. Or, um, and I would worry later about where it would fit in my narrative, but I do try to write chronologically. And I try to, you know, biography, I believe, is the best form of history because it's the most accessible. And the reader sort of trusts it more, too, because you're writing about a finite subject, in one sense, one individual. You're not, you're not pretending to tell the whole story of the CIA in the Middle East. I'm telling you the story through one man's, um, one man's life. And that's both more accessible and entertaining, but you want to draw your reader into both the personal, but also the larger picture and the history. So you want to, you know, weave the history in with the personal um, biographical narrative. And that's, to my mind, that's the trick. Well, thank you for being here today. Uh, please join me in thanking Ty Bird. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for being here today. Uh, in the back, we actually have several of Kai's books uh, that you can purchase. Uh, including American Prometheus. Again, when you're done with The Good Spy, move on to American Prometheus. Highly recommended. Uh, and you'll be back there signing some books. Uh, and so again, thank you for coming out. Uh, thank you for being here, sir. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.